Welcome to episode 136 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Thanks for joining us. Uh, we're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And I'm really looking forward to uh, our interview this week. It's with Jonathan Zittrain, who's a Harvard Law Professor, Berkman Center Faculty Director, Kennedy School, Harvard Computer Science uh, uh, Professor. Uh, uh, Jonathan, do you get four paychecks for that? <laughs> Sadly, no, and yet I have more faculty meetings, but oh, God. I haven't gone to the dental school yet. That is the worst of all worlds. Uh, yeah, we're joined also for our news roundup by Michael Vadis, formerly with the FBI and the Justice Department, now a partner in our New York office, uh, uh, by Katie Castle, attorney in our International Regulatory Compliance Group. Uh, um, we're hoping to get Maury Schenk on, uh, but uh, there's no certainty of that. Uh, uh, he's in our London office, and I am Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS, and the record holder for returning to Stepto to practice law more times than any other lawyer. Let's jump right into our uh, news uh, uh, roundup. Uh, if you're keeping score at home in the Apple versus FBI fight, uh, uh, Apple can say they have all of Silicon Valley, uh, uh, but the FBI can now count uh, supporters in Morocco in Spain, in France, uh, uh, and uh, uh, as well as in Germany uh, uh, and Belgium. Uh, I, uh, uh, the French, Belgian, Spanish, and Moroccan prosecutors who are going after ISIS uh, have been uh, giving interviews saying this encryption, this end-to-end -end encryption is killing us and naming Telegram as the uh, terrorist tool of choice. Frankly, I'm glad it's their terrorist tool of choice because it's crappy homebrewed encryption by and large and probably full of holes, but it doesn't have enough holes for these guys. They're asking uh, governments to find a way to solve their encryption problem. Uh, I, I have to say, you know, Apple and Silicon Valley have to expect that they are now embroiled in the domestic politics of every one of those countries where there'll be people on their side and people who think that they're the devil for supporting this, uh, uh, getting mixed up in the domestic politics of Morocco wasn't quite what we thought we were buying when we entered the Internet age, but that's where we are. Uh, Privacy Shield, uh, 500 signups and a challenge by uh, uh, the uh, 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 Digital Rights Ireland claiming that it uh, is insufficient and inadequate as a matter of EU law. Uh, we'll cover the details of the challenge because uh, it will unfold in a leisurely fashion uh, a bit later. Uh, this is clever. Uh, Treasury uh, wants to know more about uh, cybersecurity intrusions, not just the ones that uh, lead to uh, data breach uh, uh, notifications, and they have I, somewhere between adapted and hijacked the uh, suspicious activity reporting uh, uh, mechanism uh, to require banks to tell them about uh, cybersecurity events. Uh, Katie, uh, um, is this really new? Um, it, it seems from their advisory that... Uh some banks are already including some of these details in their report, and and um, the cyber 
security reporting is tied to the suspicious activity reports, which are only required if um, there's a suspicious transaction that involves $5,000 or more in assets. Um, but kind of how they've explained it applying to cyber events, it seems like it would apply to a wide range of events. Um, it can be anything from a malware intrusion where um, a bank determines that the access the cyber attacker gained to the system could have put um, $5,000 or more at risk. Could have. Good whether God. Or not. Yeah, yeah, it's just kind of there whether it's reasonable to assume that, you know, the cyber attacker could have intended to... Um, you know, put put $5,000 or more at risk, even if no transactions occurred. Um, and it also includes cyber events where they've exposed sensitive customer data, like credit card accounts or uh, bank account numbers. Well, those they were going to have to disclose anyway. But I think this other right. thing is really interesting. Uh, it's uh, uh, it's like DOD's effort to say, uh, um, we want to know any time somebody really gets root in your system uh, uh, or uh, manages to uh, uh, to move um, escalating privileges around your system, um, which is sensible. Uh, it was always a little silly that we only found out about it when they happened to stop on the credit card file. Um, uh, uh, but thus far, only DOD has done it through regulations. This is just taking the SAR process and saying, by the way, we want a, a, a detailed SAR for cyber intrusions. Right. Yep. If it if it's going to access kind of any of their assets or funds, then um, then it kind of has to go into the the SAR reporting. So the um, um, the constraints on regulation in this field are starting to break down, uh, not completely, but uh, uh, slowly breaking down. And and I think the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration's Cybersecurity guidance and the criticism of it uh, uh, probably is another sign that um, uh, the traditional hands-off uh, people's computers uh, uh, position is is coming under strain. Michael, did you look at that? I, I did, and um, I think it's even generous to call it guidance. Uh, this is so high level uh, that it's it's really you know is barely even putting a toe in the water of cybersecurity. Okay, so you think you you would say that the constraint is still operating? Yeah, I mean this is you know this is uh, I think NHTSA's first effort to say anything about cybersecurity, at least the first that I've heard about, and um, it basically says you've got to take cybersecurity seriously from top level, uh, build it in from uh, the ground up of your design process, uh, you know, utilize the NIST cybersecurity framework. It's really it's it's as generic as you can get. So I can understand why some people who think we need to uh, treat cybersecurity with a little more urgency might think this is um, not doing enough. Sounds like sounds like pretty tentative stuff, uh, uh, and um, uh, and that's presumably why the uh, couple of Senate Democrats who are traditionally more enthusiastic about regulation have already slammed the uh, the guidance. Yeah, like uh, Senator Markey, who is the, the head of the self-styled, uh, I forget exactly what he calls it, but the... the uh, it's probably, probably called, I think it's called the <laughs> Hyper-Regulatory Caucus. <laughs> in some quarters, I'm sure, I think it's called, <laughs> with a few epithets thrown in. Yep, uh, but, uh, you know, uh, on this one, with lies at stake, uh, they may turn out to have the last laugh on this uh, uh 
Okay. Um, uh, speaking of last laugh, uh, the European uh, Union's uh, Article 29 Working Party has uh, said to WhatsApp and Yahoo, yo, uh, uh, not so fast there. Uh, they're telling WhatsApp that they can't uh, uh, or shouldn't or uh, are going to be in trouble if they uh, combine data with uh, with Facebook. Uh, and then they're um, telling Yahoo that their $500 million, uh, $500 million name uh, uh, compromise plus the story saying that they did a search for the U.S. government uh, mean that they're going to get uh, special scrutiny. Uh, um, I think, uh, you know, not, no surprises there. Uh, uh, the European reaction to, to new technology once again is really nothing should change until uh, somebody with a government title says it's okay. Uh, that's That seems to be the WhatsApp uh, position. And in Yahoo, uh, I guess their view is, um, you know, uh, we ought to shoot the wounded after a breach. And uh, if you're helping the U.S. government, you're prima facie in violation of the European Convention on Human Rights. Um, the FCC is actually kind of going down a road that is closer to the EU's than uh, um, most government regulators in the U.S. Uh, they've got what amount to opt-in privacy rules for ISPs. Uh, uh, and, Michael, I know you looked at this. Uh, I was struck by, first, the fact that this is really the, the fruits of net neutrality. Uh, uh, now that uh, ISPs can be full-on regulated, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the FCC is taking advantage of that to impose other kinds of regulation than net neutrality. Or, or am I misreading this? No, you're absolutely reading it uh, correctly. And in contrast to what we just said about NHTSA, no one is going to complain that this is uh, uh, not aggressive enough. The, the, these are rules that would govern privacy, essentially, by broadband providers, and, and they are very prescriptive. And I think the, the, the core of this is what you alluded to, which is uh, that broadband providers would need to get affirmative opt-in consent. That is, the, the customer has to uh, expressly and uh, explicitly consent to the use and sharing of her or his sensitive information uh, by the provider. Uh, and sensitive information is defined to include precise geolocation data, financial information, health information, information about the user's children, social security numbers, web browsing history, uh, app usage history, and the content of communications. So there's a lot of stuff there that is currently mined for uh, material by broadband providers that they would need to get uh, express opt-in consent for. That's a big deal. Yeah, I, I, what I was surprised by or I, uh, found interesting is um, they can't refuse to do business with people who won't give them the consent. Uh, that's part of the rule, right? Yeah, exactly. And, that, you know, how that's going to work, I think, remains to be seen because, um, you know, it's one thing to say, okay, you need opt-in consent, uh, but you don't have to provide service for people who don't agree with you or don't agree with your, your terms. It's quite another thing to say um, you need opt-in consent. And, by the way, people don't need to opt-in, and you still got to provide them with the same service. That, that's I've never seen anything like that uh, in this area, and I think that's that's going to be a big, big source of contention. So I here's my prediction, I, uh, and, and I, I don't know what my batting average is. It's, it's, it's just okay. But uh, here's my prediction. Um, 
the ISPs are going to end up offering people five to ten uh, bucks a month off if they consent. Uh, and uh, 85% of the people who are getting service will consent. Um, and the others, um, you know, will go on about their business, happy to uh, uh, to have whatever theoretical uh, uh, protection they have. I, you know, uh, actually enforcing and administering that is going to turn out to be a nightmare for the uh, uh, for the ISPs. But I think it's likely to be a small enough number of people who uh, uh, opt out that uh, uh, they can afford to offer a pretty high price to the people who refuse opt-outs uh, so that they feel good about uh, denying uh, uh, about the opt-out uh, and uh, have their regular price be the price that uh, uh, you get if you opt in. Yeah, you know, uh, in contrast to most of your predictions, I think this one might actually um, have some some legs. <laughs> uh, but I think there's 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 really a central irony here. You know, as you pointed out, this all stems from the net neutrality rules and the fact that the FCC now has legal authority to to regulate broadband providers. And yet, from from at least one perspective, this is the the least neutral set of rules you can imagine, in the sense that these rules are limited to broadband providers, and yet. The Facebooks and Googles and, and other, you know, big internet companies that mine a tremendous amount of very private information are not subject to these rules because they're not broadband providers. They're the, they're the customers in a sense of uh, the commercial customers of broadband providers. And so I think there's, there's a real policy issue here about whether it makes sense to, to treat, uh, broadband providers so much more strictly than these other behemoths which collect a lot of information about their users. Well, you know, most um, public policy fights uh, turn out to be fights between different economic factions, uh, 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 sort of uh, clothing themselves in uh, uh, the, the public interest. Uh, and so this is a fight between Silicon Valley and uh, the pipe companies. And Silicon Valley's motto might as well be, keep the dumb pipes dumb. Uh, so that we can get all the business, uh, and, uh, having one net neutrality, now they want to do a sack dance, uh, by getting the privacy rules. I, I'm not sure that that will work out because there's a likelihood that opt-in will spread to people whose services are not quite as, uh, easy to, uh, um, modulate as, uh, the ISPs. I mean, the ISPs are in contact with their customers all the time and in a position to get, uh, to offer deals and to get a, um, a consent. That's probably true for the really big social media companies, uh, uh, Google and Facebook. Uh, but most of the guys who are uh, on the net uh, um, selling over-the-top services can't do that. Uh, um, and if they're subject to an opt-in rule, they get just frozen out of the uh, advantages of knowing where people are going. Yeah. You know, I, I think just – trying to pull back to a 30,000-foot level. I, I think the long-term trends are towards extending these sorts of rules to everyone. Um, it'll be painful, but, you know, that's certainly where Europe is going, and I think, um, by and large, we're going to see pressures to, to go to the same place here, um, and it'll be, you know, in, in small steps, and then there'll be a big uh, leak of private information, and people will wonder, why were they collecting all that stuff in the first place? And then there'll be a move to regulate and and. We'll get that sort of um, 
uh, progress, I think, over time. Well, and Silicon Valley has just created a built-in megaphone for the people who will want that, uh, because the ISPs will be going uh, around saying, yeah, yeah, uh, it's fine, the water's good, and uh, it's 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 the right thing to do. Everybody should be subject to the opt-in rules that we are subject to. Um, so um, this is a sack dance that uh, could end up uh, um, leaving Silicon Valley. Very sorry they did it. Okay, uh, LabMD should be um, uh, focused on what the Office of Civil Rights at HHS is doing because it looks to me as though the, the Office of Civil Rights has taken um, jurisdiction in a case that at bottom is a lot like the LabMD case and imposed a significant uh, fine, uh, but that also feeds the the narrative that LabMD has been putting forward, that they were already regulated and didn't need the FTC coming in to impose a 20-year consent decree on them. Uh, uh, Katie, what was the uh, what was the case? Sure. So, um, so HHS imposed a $2.1 million fine on St. Joseph's Health, which is a kind of health care delivery system. They, they do a, a, a lot of different health care services. Um, and St. Joseph's had reported to HHS that its patients' protected health information had been available on Google and potentially some other search engines for about a year uh, because it had purchased a server to store some of its new files that had protected information in it um, and hadn't really assessed or checked it. And it, ha- it happened that the server had a file sharing application whose default was to share all the files can on we, the server. Do we know what kind of file sharing? Was this really something like Napster or LimeWire back from the dead? They don't give a lot of details. Um, the fact that it was kind of purchased with the server, it wasn't, it wasn't like LabMD where, where an employee had kind of downloaded the application, but, um, but I'm not really sure how it ended up that the default was to share everything saved on the server. All right. Well, Michael so. Doherty, call your office. Uh, HHS is looking for you. Uh, um, last topic that I want to cover in any detail is uh, an interesting post by Oren Kerr uh, about, uh, you know, this weekend's uh, great flap, which is the, the discovery of uh, Huma Abedin's uh, uh, additional emails or possibly additional emails. Um, on uh, Anthony Weiner's, you know, I just don't even want to go there. But Anthony Weiner's uh, uh, laptop hard drive had Huma's emails, and as a result, the FBI has uh, announced that it's going in for a warrant to look at those emails to see if they might turn out to have some of the missing emails, whether they are classified emails that were mishandled, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, Oren, uh, who is nothing if not focused on his specialty, said, hey, you know, I remember all those revolting magistrates, uh, and they say you can't just, you know, if you have a warrant to look for child porn and uh, molestation uh, evidence uh, uh, against Anthony Weiner, you can't just go in and collect evidence on Huma Abedin uh, in a completely unrelated case. Uh, and uh, Michael, I wondered, were you persuaded by uh, uh, Oren's suggestion that uh, uh, maybe there's a real problem at the bottom that uh, having looked at this, they may have created a poisonous uh, tree whose fruits are going to play out through the next, uh, God help us, uh, five years? No, I, I think Oren missed the boat on this. I, I think he confused a couple of different things. Um, uh, you know, under the plain view doctrine, you can you can seize and uh, without a warrant uh, and and search 
items that are, that are in plain view while you're looking for something else, evidence of a, of a different crime. Um, uh, and Oren wonders, you know, did they have the authority to seize these emails um, uh, under the plain view doctrine since they're, you know, according to Comey's own statement, they're not immediately, uh, it's not immediately apparent that they're pertinent to the, the Clinton investigation. Well, the, the, the problem with the analysis is the, the emails have already been seized along with the laptop. It's not like the FBI went in and, you know, seized the email account and has been looking through uh, Huma's uh, emails um, via a search of Yahoo or something. It's got, the, it's already seized the laptop and the emails are on the laptop. So we're already past the threshold that he's worrying about legally. So they can just and go in and get is, a warrant as they, as they have said. And now they're getting a warrant. That's what they're doing. So it sort of removes the, the whole issue. I think that the interesting issue here, and this doesn't, this isn't really limited to the revolting magistrates. This is, this, this also extends to the Second Circuit, the Ninth Circuit, uh, and, and other courts. Um, there's a very difficult set of questions about how you apply the plain view doctrine to digital devices. Uh, because, you know, you don't want to say, okay, you seize the laptop to investigate, uh, Wiener's chats with a, with a minor. And so you're precluded from even you know, looking at something else that you come across while searching that, that laptop. At the same time, you don't want to enable and authorize fishing expeditions to say, all right, you can really peer through anything on this laptop. You can look through all kinds of files, even if the folder title indicates it's not at all relevant to your investigation. But courts are really, really struggling with how to draw lines here. Um, and a couple of times when, when, like for instance, when the Ninth Circuit tried to, to put in place some prophylactic rules, they ended up pulling back and saying, okay, we, we really don't know what we're doing here. We need to let the district courts figure out how to apply the plain view doctrine to digital devices. And and there is no clear guidance out there yet uh, that, that anyone really has been following consistently. Okay. Uh, so it does seem to me that's where the, the rub could be, that uh, um, there's room here for a detailed scrutiny of step-by-step step, what the FBI looked at, how they came to the conclusion that Huma's emails were on there, how they figured out that maybe they were relevant to this, uh, because every step that they took to say, oh, I, boy, I wonder if this is relevant to a different case, is potentially a step outside of what they were entitled to do by plain view. I, I think you're I think you're absolutely right, and, and, that's, and that's difficult, because the more they do, Try to figure out if these if these emails are pertinent to the Clinton email investigation. Um, the, you know, the more they're getting into very uh, potentially hot water uh, because they're going beyond plain view at that point. And and then the other interesting question is, in the search warrant application now to really search these these emails and and, um, and examine them closely, um, what are they saying about how they've got probable cause? Because Comey's statements months ago. Was that look? This you know, we 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 recommended that no one be prosecuted over the Clinton emails, and it wasn't even a close case. That, that, that's a paraphrase, but it's essentially what he said: that it wasn't a close case whether anyone committed any prosecutable crime. Well, if it wasn't a close case, what's the probable cause? Ah, for, that's that's, for a, that's a good one. These emails. So I, I, it's, it's, I, let me let me ask. A, a, a shocking question in the context of a search warrant, but less so in the context of a subpoena. Why do they need probable cause? This is clearly relevant to an investigation that hasn't yet been closed. Um, and so why don't they just subpoena it? 
I guess it's content, so they have said they're going to get a warrant. But it, it's clearly relevant to their investigation, isn't it? Um, it's it, it, yeah, really, you know, relevance is such a broad term. Yes, it's it's relevant, but but if you take the view that you need a search warrant to examine the content of communications, you know, of whatever age or however you define them, um, you know, I think the safer course is to get a search warrant. I, there, there is an argument that for for these you know, if they're emails that have already been opened, um, at least in previous years, the Justice Department would have said you don't need a you don't need a search warrant. But the policy now is you need a search warrant, and certainly some courts have said the same thing. So uh, I think that's why they're taking the, the safer uh, course of getting a search warrant. And it's not as though time is of the essence; you can't even take a couple hours to go get a search warrant from a from a magistrate. Well, I, and there's an alternative argument here for those of us who read the uh, the DNC tweets over the weekend uh, uh, or the DNC-inspired tweets. Uh, uh, everybody and his brother, including Hillary Clinton, have consented with enthusiasm to uh, having these um, uh, emails released. So uh, maybe they've already agreed that the, um, uh, the search can go forward. Yeah, those, you know, we don't know what Huma consented to um, since the other reports I've seen say that she has no clue about how copies of these emails ended up on her estranged husband's laptop. And if that's the case, maybe the consent that she gave previously to the to the bureau did not extend to Wiener's laptop. I I want to I want to commend you uh, and myself for getting through this entire discussion without actually making any jokes about Anthony Weiner uh, uh, tempting though it was uh, <laughs> not easy. Yes, exactly. And and just I I mentioned sack dances earlier. I think uh, I'm going to do a premature sack dance at risk of uh, dropping the ball. Uh, um, 23 lawmakers uh, wrote to the Justice Department whining about the uh, Rule 41 changes that will enable, as they say, mass hacking, uh, especially of uh, pedophiles and uh, uh, DDoS attackers. Uh, uh, that is a whopping 6% of Congress, uh, of the 535 lawmakers. Uh, I, and, uh, you know, if they can, if they pick up, uh, uh, you know, uh, another 5% every uh, week, they still won't have a majority by the time uh, December 1 rolls around uh, 30 days from now uh, and the rule takes effect. So more futile hand-waving on the part of uh, uh, libertarians in Congress. Uh, but I really want to get to uh, a discussion with Jonathan Zittrain. Um, I, I, we probably don't agree at all on most political issues, uh, uh, <laughs> but we we I had a, a, a side discussion with him uh, uh, about the uh, uh, the WikiLeaks uh, DNC. Uh, uh, Colin Powell hacks, uh, and there was sort of surprising parallelism in, in some of our views or experiences. Uh, and he's since written a couple of interesting articles, one um, uh, for Lawfare and one for uh, uh, Just Security, uh, um, showing his uh, um, even-handedness. Um, the, uh, the one for um, uh, Just Security was, I thought, maybe more interesting, although the other may be more practical. Uh, and and if, I, if I read your... Um, your article right, uh, Jonathan. You're basically saying, hey, you know, 
If you thought the uh, uh, the people who are doing these mass releases of data, whether it's Edward Snowden or Manning or uh, uh, somebody else, were heroes, it's time to rethink that, and not just because Democrats are the victims, uh, but because you know private individuals who uh, haven't asked for this other than by using uh, um, email and um, Having somebody mad at them uh, uh, has asked for it. Uh, they're they're nonetheless being punished pretty brutally, uh, and it's time to rethink our assumption that these guys are uh, civil liberties heroes. I think going one layer down on that, uh, I feel like there's almost a spectrum over time that's worth uh, being nuanced about for which I'd put Snowden and Manning in the middle of it, I begin it with the kinds of leaks that we think of with something like Watergate, where um, uh, there's something going on within government, government itself is covering it up, and somebody directly involved feels some need uh, to leak uh, what's going on, either to Congress or then to the public. I'd put the Ellsberg leaks of the Pentagon Papers, which ended up related to Watergate in that category as well. That's kind of one category of official governmental stuff that's being leaked. And there's all sorts of stuff to debate about that, but it's quite different to be leaking official government stuff, very specifically as was done there, then compare it to Snowden and Manning, and you still have official government stuff being leaked by people who were in or affiliated with the government and therefore had their own kind of necks on the line. Um, and we can talk more about that. Um, but then they go bulk. They're releasing all sorts of stuff for which it's really, I think, hard, if not impossible, for them to know what they have uh, released. And then you end up with a kind of the third stage more recently of these mass private email leaks. And these are people, you know, citizens' Gmail accounts. In the case of somebody like Colin Powell, he's long since out of office. It's just him being him as a guy. And even with John Podesta, he's not in office. He's he's in the political system. He's working a campaign. But to have his private Gmail uh, compromised in bulk uh, and other folks who are not nearly as prominent as he is, like you know somebody who was uh, a volunteer on the campaign or a junior advance team member, have his private Gmail leaked, and you can see him talking about his fraternity reunion from college. That just seems to me very different than the kinds of leaks that preceded it, and not worth counting all in one cluster. Yeah, I I I, I would. I have to say, I don't remember you writing this article when Sarah Palin's uh, uh, email was compromised, or even George Bush's by Guccifer. Uh, uh, there is a certain amount of, uh, uh, they finally got around to your friend's uh, uh, element to this uh, uh, discovery. Not that I don't welcome it, because I do welcome it, but I, <laughs> I, 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 I think people who uh, we disagree with always look like fair game for this kind of behavior uh, until we realize that it, it, it's changed the game entirely. Well, um, I incorporate by reference the great umbrage taken at questioning of motives and such and move on past that <laughs> and just say that uh, 
Uh, I'm not sure Lawfare and Just Security existed at the time of the Palin and uh, W leaks, but whether or not they did, I absolutely would put them in the same category as these kind of Category 3 leaks. These are uh, essentially private citizens at the time it's leaking. It's their private accounts, whether it's Gmail or Yahoo, uh, in Sarah Palin's case, or AOL. And absolutely, it's it's corrosive to see that happening. And I actually think the kind of delectation with which these leaks are received and people are sort of looking at George W. Bush's paintings or something, uh, it's not great for us. I think it, it dehumanizes further our political leaders or former political leaders or candidates and makes them have to adopt an official mean all the time. They're never off the clock that even has them less able to relate to the people they're supposed to represent. I think like across the board, it's quite corrosive to see it happen. And I, I, I think there's an opportunity. The fact that this is equal opportunity hacking now Brian Krebs called a democratization of hacking, that basically anybody with a grievance might be in a position to compromise their target's accounts actually makes it a problem that uh, need not be looked at through a partisan lens. Yeah, in the Internet that age, everybody has a hacker for 15 minutes. Uh, uh, you're, 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 you're famous for 15 minutes. You get hacked. Uh, your, your emails are spread around. Uh, you're uh, mocked and uh, abused and forgotten. Um, it's, uh, it's, yes. it's a great or, or as my colleague David Weinberger said once, everybody's famous for 15 people on yes. the internet. <laughs> and it only takes one of those 15 to decide to go public with, uh, your stuff. So the reason I, 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 I I'm not questioning your motives, uh, just the, the, your late arrival at this conclusion. <laughs> I, it, it is, I, I, I thought uh, uh, Manning and Snowden were scumbags, too. Uh, they were violating the law in the same way that the people who are uh, releasing these private emails uh, were violating the law. And I recognize there are there are folks who think, well, maybe the law is not a, such a good idea. But in fact, we couldn't live without a law on secrecy uh, uh, and uh, mass disclosures is not the right response to thinking that maybe there's some overclassification in government. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, Ellsberg's special case and probably the uh, the edge case, because he said, uh, I'm releasing this, uh, you know, go ahead and lock me up. Uh, this is an act of civil disobedience. And um, I'm not sure how many other people are prepared to take the consequences of their release. Uh, if they if they were, this would be a much rarer thing, uh, and we wouldn't see any of the private stuff uh, released. I think that's right. I think that is certainly a difference, how Ellsberg chose to do what he did. It's also notable that Ellsberg first uh, sent the Pentagon Papers to members of Congress uh, looking within the system or outside his branch, but within the governmental system. And then when nothing happened, uh, took a further step. And as you say, um, answered to it in the classic civil disobedience uh, tradition. So uh, that's a difference. But it's funny to reflect on the fact that it wasn't that long after the Manning and Snowden leaks that you have senior members of government at the time, Eric Holder, including President Obama, saying, allowing, well, this is a constructive conversation that has been started by this, um, that good things can come from bad acts, basically, appeared to me to be what they were saying. 
Well, hell, and, come, come on now, Jonathan. Uh, we now have a really good risotto recipe that we didn't have before. <laughs> yeah, well, on the scale, <laughs> maybe there's something there. And it's also true that for people who have been in the public eye and are just used to, I mean, by Darwinian, if not Lamarckian selection, if you're going to be running for president or holding these high offices, you end up developing a thick skin. But then you start to see targets um, that have not made that kind of trade-off, that are not those sorts of rare edge-case public figures. And that's its own kind of worry, uh, I think, that uh, you just hesitate to share any view online lest you be subject to a torrent of abuse or doxing. And uh, I think it's it, it kind of flips when you say, well, who's the underdog here? I think there are people who tend structurally to give a little extra solicitude to the underdog. And, well, they're taking on the big government or the corrupt government or something. And here, I don't even think there's so much the benefit of that, that the the you have possibly corrupt governments behind the hack, and you have the underdogs, just some person who's daring to participate in a dialogic activity online that then gets hacked. So and, and that's a flip, again, from the prior two categories of leaks. I think you're right. I want to come back to the government role, but uh, I, I I can't help thinking, you know, uh, back to, I, I talked about uh, in Skating on Silks about how uh, our notions of privacy, which we always think are immutable principles that should be defended forever, uh, uh, turn out to be remarkably contextual and contingent and shifting over time. Uh, I, because what happens is um, a an intrusion into our privacy, like uh, 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 Justice Brandeis and his stupid objection to having his picture taken by, you know, his, his, his <laughs> inferiors. Um, a, 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 he was, he was shocked and appalled that that happened and it really, it, it raised a, a bruise. Uh, but you know, the fifth time, the twentieth time, the millionth time your picture is taken, you get, kind of get over it. Uh, you develop a callus, uh, uh, there. And I, I, it, it seems to me that, uh, uh, that's what's happening here. You, we're, we're developing calluses as a result of the exposure of all of this uh, 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 personal private information. Uh, and we're just all going to develop those calluses. Uh, it's just uh, it's the way the world is. And we should all get used to the idea that you know, we just don't have uh, privacy because we aren't likely to, uh, uh, um, survive, uh, the, uh, the callous formation process. Well, this connects to a lot of the earlier topics, uh, in today's podcast. When you think yes. about the privacy rules and such, and by the, the, um, conclusion that you ended up drawing was sort of just get out of the way of progress. Don't be, uh, Sort of an over delicate <laughs> brand yeah. saying, no, no, I, I, you know, uh, we can't have modernity. That's definitely one frame for it. And it's also the kind of general disposition against regulation frame. Oh, Silicon Valley and others are out there doing great stuff. Just let them do it. But I think there's another frame that says, uh, it's true. You can get used to just about anything. We can habituate. And I even think about uh, the uproar, not just among the public, but among pilots and such over the uh, uh, extra body scanners that were put in yeah. post 9-11 and for which there was, you know, 
still, I think, conflict over whether they actually work effectively uh, or whether they um, harm the people that are subjected to them. But now who but cares? Then people just got used to it. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. But now there's still an objective question of whether they work effectively and whether they hurt us. And if it turns out that they do, uh, the fact that we've all gotten used to it shouldn't be a reason not to have a policy that adjusts in the course of what we learn. Well, and I and think I, it's true I, I, though for any. Let me let me just stop there. There's really two harms. Yeah. If 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 they cause cancer, we're gonna we're gonna rip them out. I, I think everybody agrees that that harm is a harm we're not going to tolerate. But the restoring a world in which we don't expect anyone to have a a quasi naked picture of us uh, we're not we're never going to restore that world uh, and it's not even clear that the harm exists anymore because we've all gotten used to the idea that there's somebody down in the basement uh, who as part of his job looks at uh, pictures that uh, are arguably uh, uh, compromising it's true that whenever you've got like a post hoc look back it may seem quaint, the worries, and then what do you do? I mean, I, I bet both of us are old enough to remember when caller ID was first introduced. And uh, I think it was the ACLU, even though it wasn't a government program, was among those having a real issue with caller ID. And they pointed out edge cases where will, be, will people still call suicide hotlines? Will they make anonymous tips? But they didn't like the idea that they were exposed in a way they hadn't been used to. Yep. And their ability to call somebody and not telegraph who they were before they... Uh, the phone was picked up, and then, of course, you had uh, the phone company's offer for an extra fee on top of the fee for caller ID for the receiving. You could have a fee to block your number and you know, kind of get into an arms race. Uh, and so I think you're right. We have to realize and, and come up with a difference at a starting point of a, a, a technological shift on what is mere status quoism, just sort of this weird – Kind of, I just want things to stay as they are. Yeah, otherwise known as Luddism. Examples of that. Yeah, yeah, maybe. Although, you know, as is commonly pointed out, the Luddites had a point. (laughs) (laughs) Their worst fears were realized. Um, But also then, what are actual changes to the ways in which we relate to one another and we shift a balance of power between us and bigger institutions, whether they're governments or corporations, that you would want to be thoughtful about, even if you end up resigned to it at the end. And uh, I'll bet you would agree that the amount of information collectible on somebody uh, has just gone through the roof in the past 20 years. And whether we should just accept that water always finds its level, and if it's going to be committed to a platter somewhere, basically going to be in everybody's hands before too long, I, I think it may be worth it, including to think technologically, not just regulatorily, about how we might have uh, uh, paths towards privacy while still allowing information to flow as it should. And and that's what you mentioned, the two articles. Um, The one that I uh, wrote for Lawfare was really thinking about big technological changes that could allow people to keep secrets for a period of time or under a certain circumstance uh, and then have them be available for posterity as well. So this is not this is really not different from the security problem in general. We we want to be able to use IT, and we, but we would we would like our uh, heart monitors to be uh, uh, connected to the internet. And we would like people not to be able to kill us by turning them off uh, or delivering shots. I think that's or right, and we wouldn't expect to, or even if we did, habituate to the fact. As <laughs> no. I think we've habituated to the number of automobile accidents that happen enough that it feels weird to 
to go towards autonomous vehicles, even if it would, it seems, save thousands of lives in a month, uh, it would be strange to habituate to every so often our heart pacemakers get hacked and you just drop dead by one of your 15 enemies pressing a button. Like, maybe we would habituate to that, but that's still not a world we should... Uh, well, there, there wouldn't be any any complaints from the victims, at least. Uh, but yes, I think you're right. <laughs> habituating is probably not the right term for it. Uh, although I do think, you know, we, we we do habituate to stuff. I mean, I always used to say that one of the reasons why uh, computer security disasters were uh, less likely is that we'd all gotten used to our computers failing us at various times. So they would they would just crash. And so you knew not to not to count on it to be absolutely perfect. Uh, I, and that was you can you can call it habituation, you can call it resilience, uh, but we had built a variety of coping mechanisms uh, as we will have to build coping mechanisms for these uh, these doxing incidents. Um, and well what, yeah. it, it- I was just going to say, you can see that beautifully illustrated from 1977 when Steve Jobs introduces the Apple II, and it's a hobbyist's machine meant to bonk uh, all the time. It then uh, kind of sideways becomes an enterprise machine used by companies around the world, thanks to VisiCalc. If you just wanted to run spreadsheets, you needed a hobbyist's Apple II computer. And then you fast forward 30 years later, 2007, Steve Jobs is introducing an iPhone, and there's no app store. And he's saying there's no accident for that because you don't want to load up uh, some piece of software from somewhere and suddenly your phone doesn't work. Like he was thinking of it not as a computer but as an appliance. Yep. And I think that struggle between the fault tolerance we have towards the uh, Internet and towards the uh, computers we use, whether or not we should be thinking of that when we Internet of Thingsify stuff and uh, – uh, if we are not wanting that kind of uh, unreliability, what sorts of lockdown will we accept to try to forestall it? So your, 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 some of your, your solutions that sort of recommended to ordinary users I thought were interesting. Uh, use digital signatures so at least people can't forge your content, uh, although that means you also can't deny it. And, and, and one of the responses to these things is just going to be denial because nobody cares enough to go figure it out in most cases. Uh, uh, you deny it. It's out there. Uh, um, uh, three weeks later, people can't remember who it was that had that problem. Uh, they could find it if they cared, but uh, only your most dedicated enemies will continue to keep that uh, um, that particular scandal alive. Uh, uh, so I, I, I thought that was a, a mixed bag doing digital signatures, uh, uh, but an interesting approach. Uh, um, you, you talked about uh, two-factor authentication, if I remember, and that certainly everybody should be doing that. Uh, uh, did, did you read the story of how Podesta's email actually got hacked? Uh, it, it's it's like a Greek tragedy. He gets this fake. It certainly didn't need a state actor to do it. Sorry, go ahead. No, no, I, I did, it didn't accept that it was, it was so tragic. He gets this fake thing saying, your Gmail has been compromised from Google. Uh, and it looked pretty uh, official, but he's smart enough to send it to somebody who is not him, who can spend time thinking about whether there's a problem. And this person decides there really is a problem and it's not fake, but is also not stupid enough to say, why don't you click on the link that's in the email, sends the right link and says also uh, get um, uh, two-factor authentication, but don't do it in a way that locks Podesta out of his email. And 
you know, just, uh, if things can screw up, they will. Uh, whoever gets that email has the link from the phishing email and clicks on it and then hopes to set up, uh, uh, two factor authentication. I'm not sure that part worked, but, uh, uh, it, it, it's just so painful. You can see them almost escape and then fall prey <laughs> to the, to the phishing email. It's, it's sad. To, uh, but it means yeah. that, you know, it's not just catching you after a glass of wine, uh, in, in a weak moment. Uh, uh, even organizations that know they're at risk, uh, and have people dedicated this to this can screw up. I should say too, that's a good example of the limits even of two-factor authentication because if you, after you have set it up, you still end up clicking on a link you shouldn't and finding a screen that you think is Google and it isn't, that screen, that man in the middle, can end up relaying Google's request for two-factor authentication yes. and you just type your magic number into that screen and still let the bad guys in. And, uh, that's one reason why a, a longer-term approach I'm thinking of, apart from two-factor authentication and password managers and maybe digital signatures, although as Chris Segoyan pointed out, um, often the choice of a digital signature isn't yours. It's uh, your email provider, Google or something, might stamp with DKIM yep. the fact that you process that through their server, and that ends up being your, your signature. But uh, all of that aside, over the longer term, uh, I, I have the concept I'm calling going cold, not going dark, but going cold, modeled after something like Amazon Glacier Storage, where if you have a bunch of stuff you just want to put in the cloud somewhere, Amazon is happy to accommodate you separately from selling you stuff. They will uh, offer to businesses and others just big piles of storage, and it will cost less if you don't mind having a few hours before you get the stuff. Now, that might be because they're putting it on tapes and storing it offline. It might just be because they're segmenting their market and imposing an arbitrary delay. But that's something that's meant to be something you suffer in order to have to pay less. But you could see that as a feature. Yeah. That if whoever has uh, access to somebody like Podesta's email says, you know what, I want to slurp all of it down, give me everything – that should be subject, uh, maybe like buying a Saturday night special, to a cooling off period. <laughs> and they'll say, all right, well, we put in your order. It's going to take you 24 hours to get everything. And in the meantime, there's an opportunity to alert the various contacts they have for the user and say, did you really request this? Are you sure you want to do this? And it kind of goes against the everything faster, bigger, louder efficiencies uh, of this stuff. But for unusual and big requests, it seems a no-brainer to do it. For a cross-cultural interpretation of Jonathan's suggestion that Saturday night special uh, uh, delays are the way to handle this problem, I, <laughs> I, I, I suggest that the other half of our audience think of it as a waiting period for abortion. I, that then covers the gamut. <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I, I think that it is a feature that, that it's slower, and I've often thought that that's how you ought to handle internal network information. It ought to be hard to get to the most important stuff, and it ought to come slow. Uh, and people ought to have to reauthenticate in different ways in order to keep the flow coming, all of which makes, it kind of integrates your, uh, 
a resilience uh, a strategy with an attribution strategy that uh, allows you to catch the bad guys before the stuff leaves. Uh, um, and so I, yeah, I, I actually do think um, uh, Amazon's missing a bet if they don't say, uh, uh, and not only are we going to slow it down, but we're going to make you do some authentication uh, uh, as part of uh, getting your stuff back. And I should say another idea on the uh, just the medium to longer term is a form of uh, shard encryption or what we're calling strong dark archives so that to get back into something you do want to save for posterity, but you're not going to need every uh, 10 minutes is you encrypt it, but not just give yourself a key. You break the key into fragments, think of them as horcruxes in Harry Potter, and you need six out of the nine to actually get the stuff back, and you entrust the other fragments to friends, neighbors, fiduciaries, you name it, and uh, you've got to get them all together in order to launch that missile. Well, and, no, you, uh, all you have to do is, is that this is you tie it into the blockchain, and when the blockchain says that the uh, uh, that six of the nine have given their permission, then uh, uh, it, the keys released. Uh, seems to me that, that if we can't do it with the blockchain, uh, we're we're kidding ourselves. Well, that's something. Uh, uh, anybody wants to do a startup on that, I'm in. <laughs> Sounds good. So, last question because uh, we're over time, uh, but uh, I cannot resist. This is this is news and gratifying news. Uh, uh, Vladislav Surkov, who we've never heard of, but who is one of the architects of the uh, uh, Putin regime's adaptation to the internet world, and a, uh, a mal adaptation it is indeed, uh, uh, has had a bunch of his emails, or at least his aides' emails compromised, uh, including passport photos and a bunch of information suggesting that uh, uh, you know, telling us what we already knew, which was that the Russians were fishing in the Ukraine waters and creating uh, uh, crises for purposes of advancing their little green men across the uh, Ukraine. Um, uh, he's been hacked and uh, we've got a set of his stuff and it's been released by a allegedly Ukrainian group. Uh, I'm waiting for them to start talking in uh, 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 special accents to emphasize that they are Ukrainian, um, uh, but uh, uh, called Cyber Junta. Um, and I'm kind of hopeful that this is a down payment on mutually assured doxing uh, that the U.S. government um, uh, hand in this, while never disclosed, is obvious to at least Surkov. Uh, um, but I'm not sure it's enough. It wasn't embarrassing enough. Uh, uh, we should keep track of who's fired in the uh, Kremlin uh, uh, and make sure that at least as many people are fired there as are fired here as a result of the DNC hacks, uh, uh, but I wondered uh, in the last answer that I'll ask from you, uh, Jonathan, um, what do you think is the solution to the utter mismatch in which uh, governments that don't like us uh, and have their own agenda and are trying to uh, uh, discredit people whose goals are patriotic and therefore opposed to theirs, uh, what's our solution to their hacking and now doxing of their opponents? Well, I think that uh, meeting a leak with a uh, mutual symmetric counter leak is not a great idea. The meaning of a leak and of exposing something may be quite different in a society or a government that uh, isn't open or doesn't embrace the rule of law. 
and that governments, when working with one another, have the benefit of choosing their means of response when they are displeased with the other. And, you know, it calls to mind the Cold War. If uh, somebody does something bad to you, if the Soviets do something bad to America, they can expel a diplomat, even if the expulsion of a diplomat wasn't the thing that started it off. And being able to uh, not ratify a kind of behavior such as doxing private citizens by turning around and saying, we're going to do yours now, but rather having plenty of other means, trade, diplomacy, intelligence, to respond to another state actor, um, surely we should have the uh, maturity to do it. So I, I don't get the kind of wink-wink, look, we'll do it to you too sort of thing. That just normalizes the behavior as a tool in the toolbox. Oh, that is so, that, that is so Barack Obama, really. That is, that's just, that, 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 <laughs> it, 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 you know, it, 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 we don't create norms in the United States, uh, uh, for, for the international community, notwithstanding the preening as- assumption of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, Harvard Law professors. Uh, it, 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 but nobody, nobody cares what we think, uh, unless what we think is backed by a willingness to actually enforce that norm. Uh, and, and, and this, you know, doxing works and it's going to happen. We have a, we have an ability to enforce the norm with other means. Oh, okay. Rather so you can always d- assume. Tell me, you know, tell me, tell me it's one not thing. Like you if would somebody do. uses chemical weapons, you say, well, the way we'll enforce the norm against it is to use chemical weapons on you until you agree it's really bad. You come up with other ways to deal with it. Well, I think I, I fear we're coming up with the same uh, solution for doxing that we came up with for Syrian chemical weapons. We announce a red line and then ignore it. What would you do? Well, I would respond in ways. It's still possible. This is the basis of relationships between states. And make no mistake, America like can cause plenty of other countries, including the Russians, problems when and if it wants to. So you can argue about whether a response is too timid. But the idea that somehow we are defanging ourselves to take off the table, whether it's the use of chemical weapons or doxing or anything else that we don't want to contribute to the establishment of a norm, I think there's plenty of ways uh, to express our displeasure and to try to conform other people's behavior without just saying, please stop, that don't entail engaging in the very behavior that we want to keep out of bounds. We are in many ways a leader here because we've got the resources and the talent and the technology to be on the, the, the cutting edge. And uh, what we routinize is setting a model for others. Well, I, 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 yes, we have lots of talent uh, and they are uh, they are matched, uh, unfortunately, not just by the talent in other countries, but by the uh, uh, quality and numerosity of our legal uh, second guessers. Uh, so that uh, uh, much of our talent is bound up in meeting alleged legal and normative requirements that nobody else cares about, uh, and setting an example that nobody else is following. So I'm I'm just not. Persuaded. I think to the extent those activities help distill what we're doing and provide a check against it, we've certainly got, uh, as, as you know, we've got a, a nice employment program for lawyers, and to me, that's actually resources well spent if what they're doing. Oh, and I, I, really... I, I would never question that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So, but, yeah. but I, I just, to, to put a finer point on it, you keep saying there are other things we can do. So name two. Oh gosh, you choose to move a tank closer to a border. You enter into new agreements and relationships with satellite states of the other entity. You uh, have trade and other repercussions that you can make that say, if you screw me over in this one zone, you're going to pay the price in another zone. In fact, that's often the fungibility that the World Trade Organization uh, relies upon so that when we are deemed to have, as we were, uh, uh, wronged the Irish with our rules about when you can play music in restaurants, and, you know, Irish composers, the WTO held, were wronged by that, then the Irish get to choose which import. Is it going to be, you know, American software or our rice that will be uh, uh, taxed as a result rather than Ireland saying, well, that does it, you know, we're not going to remit licensing fees to American composers. Uh, there's, there's certainly ways of uh, responding and ways that enforce that don't require using the modality that's a modality that we think is a harmful practice, especially if it should go public. And I think it's actually really important to keep our intelligence apparatus uh, on task that leaning intelligence for the use of policymakers to make informed decisions, if there's any purpose for the agencies, there's their first one, uh, rather than gleaning stuff so that it can then be strategically released for the purpose of shaming and embarrassing individuals, I, I'm glad that there doesn't appear to be evidence that we're going down that path. Well, I, I certainly hope we are. Uh, but, uh, uh, Jonathan, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. You've been a good sport and a uh, really thoughtful commentator <laughs> on these uh, these issues. Uh, and I take everything I ever said bad about Harvard Law Professors back, uh, uh, at least for a week. Um, uh, thanks. Well, perhaps like a uh, Trump uh, endorsement or non-endorsement, I assume that is contingent. And so I will <laughs> still be under the watchful eye as to whether uh, <laughs> your view of uh, – the professor, it has changed. It's 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 true. Uh, could could change at any moment. Uh, but uh, thanks for doing <laughs> this. Uh, uh, thanks also to Michael Vadis and Katie Castle for joining us. Uh, as always, the Cyber Law uh, Podcast is open to feedback, and we hope you'll send us uh, your thoughts, uh, suggestions for people we ought to interview. Uh, Cyber Law Podcast at steptoe.com or leave us a good review on iTunes. We're always reading our re- uh, returns uh, uh, and uh, every bad review. Uh, hurts us as much as doxing us so if you're thinking about doxing me just leave a bad review uh, uh, thanks uh, uh, to everyone uh, for their participation uh, and this has been episode 136 of the Steptoe Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson coming up we're going to have Scott Charney of Microsoft uh, a longtime uh, security uh, 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 thinker uh, and uh, participant. Uh, we hope us, uh, you'll join us for that interview and others as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government. <laughs>